0: My guest this week is Justin Caffrey. Justin is joining us from Ireland. He's an entrepreneur and he also has studied Buddhism and a lot of cool stuff. You're going to love this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Please check me out on Instagram at NoorKidwai. I'm putting on a lot of new funny videos and trying to keep with the theme of the podcast and everything. So I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Please uh, follow me on that. Also, uh, we're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records, so check me out on that too. Guys, let's get into this week's episode. My guest this week, Justin Caffrey. All right, welcome to another episode of God, Ye or Nay. I'm here with Justin Caffrey. Justin, thank you for joining me.
1: No problem, Nora. Thanks for having me on.
0: Oh, I'm I'm really excited to have you on. Um, a, a big part of this is because my, my whole podcast is about self-transformation. I love stories about people who transform themselves and try to become their best self. And uh, that's something uh, that you definitely went through. And I think a big part of it is like, I, I try to get to people's mind that like, transformation is going to eventually happen in your life. You're going to eventually change. And sometimes that happens gradually or sometimes like, a big incident happens in your life, which happened to you. You had a huge trauma, a huge loss. And that kind of like was a forcing to like force you to change almost. Um, And like, yeah, I I want you to, if you can kind of tell my audience a little bit about your story and like how this kind of change happened to you when you had your loss.
1: Sure. I mean, I, I think the, you know, the whole idea of, of transformation for me, um, I suppose it should have happened at the time of of my loss, but it took a couple of years afterwards. But we lost our our second son, um, Joshua, back in 2011. Um, Joshua was only 11 months old when he died. And at that moment um, in my life, I should have been uh, immersed in grief and I should have been inside that process. But I didn't really go into it properly. My wife did. She she went through the grieving process. She really worked through it. Um, I ended up coming through that period of time, within a couple of months, establishing um, a new business and trying to rebuild my life um, without tapping into the grief. So the net result, unsurprisingly, is that grief is a capacity that you either deal with it at the time it arrives or it comes back and gets you later on. Um, and when it gets you, it's a whole lot worse. So two and a half years later, I, I had PTSD. I had a panic attack in a meeting. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a stroke or a heart attack or something. Um, but it was, it was the fact that I hadn't dealt with the loss of, of my son. And I realized that I needed to take stock. I needed to really take account of my life and um, it was a moment for for some insight, but also a time where I started to realize that slowing down. Um, you know, a great phrase that I really like is 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 doing less to accomplish more. You know, my my life was busy; it was complex. I'd I'd built multiple businesses over the the previous twenty years. Um, I was always kind of full tilt type individual, and. And I probably just pushed it to a point where I needed to give myself a break. And you know, to grieve is to slow down. It's to it's to really immerse yourself inside that loss. So that was a huge wake up call and an opportunity to to kind of pay attention to me, my health, my lifestyle, and my family.
0: Yeah, and uh, I, I like that whole idea of like you have to immerse yourself in the grief when that like when something like that happens to you, you have to go through that healing process. Or it will eventually end up kicking your ass down the road, and it seemed like it did that like a a lot like a lot harder to you down the road, right?
1: Totally. I mean, I do a lot of work with with grief and 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 speaking this topic quite a lot. And the one thing that I say all the time is when people end up losing somebody, a loved one, you know, maybe it's it, it's a parent or or a sibling or a partner, or you know, tragically even for people who lose children, the reality is you you have to just accept the grief because it's here and it won't go away you know and for me i tried to outrun it and it's it's like trying to outrun something that's tethered to you you know you can't ever outrun it and every time you try and stop it's catching up with you so it's important to to be part of it to immerse yourself in it and yes it will be it will be painful you know it will have it will have consequences in terms of um coming to terms with the loss but delaying it is a whole lot worse um and with a when I when I arrived with a panic attack I then had anxiety really bad um stress and anxiety and I I'd never really had these feelings before and all of a sudden I was consumed by this within a very short space of time like it was uh February 2014 um and you know by may, I was starting to consider suicide as an option. So like the the snap from a mental health perspective can actually be quite fast. A lot of times we think these things build up over slow periods of time, but busy people have a way of staying away from it. And then suddenly it's just boom, it's with you.
0: Yeah. And uh, like you said, that panic attack, like, I I think, especially like how you're saying that you were a very fast paced person who didn't even like think about these things. Um, like I, I was in the same boat with myself and like, I remember the first time I had a panic attack and I was just like, Holy shit. Like, this is something I just like never even thought was like a a possibility in my life. And like, that's why I can see like, if you kept, like, if this was something that became regular for you, I can see you kind of like maybe contemplating, like taking your own life after that, because it's like, it's just a completely dramatic shift in the way you like thought like your world would even could be. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like I had, I only ever had one panic attack in my whole life. And when I had that panic attack, it was in a really important meeting and I needed to close a deal. So I stayed inside the panic attack and it lasted for about 15 or 20 minutes. And Mm -hmm. to give you an idea of my mentality at the time, I actually thought this is either a mild stroke or heart attack. I'm not too sure which one it is, but I don't think it's bad enough to send me to hospital and I can still close this deal. So I lost my peripheral vision. My my palms were sweaty. If I was looking at one person in the meeting, I had to literally turn and look them straight in the eye because I couldn't see anything from a periphery standpoint. But I kept going. I thought I'll close the deal and I figured it out later on. So I closed the deal, um, literally holding myself up as as these clients left my office and then went to my hotel and thought, mm, I don't really know what that was. I think it was definitely a stroke or a heart attack. But it was mild, so I went to the bar and had a drink um,
0: <laughs> and thought
1: well you know great I've closed the deal so it's okay um but that was the entry point into uh my mental health um spiraling and it was it was i didn't have any more panic attacks but the the sense of um helplessness and hopelessness um and despair and trying to find purpose in my life but the noise in my head you know the the constant chatter, the critical voice, you know, everything is going to go wrong. It was just a crescendo of emotions from that point, which just brought me to the point where I thought, I just want to end the noise. And and I just had this realization one morning, actually, if I killed myself, the noise would go away. Um, And almost trying to logically think, well, that's probably actually a good idea, which of course it isn't. But in the midst of, chaos and a storm in your head you just want relief
0: yeah man uh, i i know what you're saying that's uh and that i wouldn't doubt how like dark of a place that would be so like at what point did you was there like this turning point or at what point did you like kind of see a light or anything
1: well i was really lucky that just as as in in the, in you know and, and as i say this was all happening over a three-month period and I'd um, spoken to my wife. Uh, she realized I wasn't well. Um, I realized I needed to get help. I found a, um, a psychologist um, through a friend of mine who worked in New York, who operated in the non-medicated space. So my, my dad, when I was growing up, suffered from anxiety and depression and he'd been medicated all the way through his life. And sadly, until, until he died. He was heavily medicated, and I thought, I don't want to go on that road. So I knew I had a mental health issue, but I didn't want to get medicated. I wanted to resolve this by alternative means. So I'd found somebody through a pal of mine who operated in New York, who I knew worked within a kind of mindfulness technique and an integrated meditation into, into therapy. Um, so I was getting ready to, to go to New York to work with this guy, and I heard this and uh, my wife walked into the kitchen and said, Look, you got to turn on the radio, put on this news channel. We turned it on. And there was a guy in Ireland um, who uh, was a psychiatrist who had worked in the UK and Ireland. And um, he was talking about the fact that he'd given up on the whole psychiatry world because he'd become disenfranchised with the net result of therapy and medication. And he'd reverted back to techniques that he'd trained um, in when he was younger in India. Um, And he was a Hindu. And he talked about this technique that he'd created himself over the last 10 years, which was a completely non-medicated approach. And it just was principally built around bringing people right inside their pain and really wearing it, getting close to it, and then starting to let it go and realize it's not as bad as it seems. And I thought, wow that's my guy um and i went into therapy with him and uh, that just changed my life
0: yeah and uh so like i actually that's like interesting i think that's like uh we'll get into a little bit of mindfulness and meditation for sure but i think that's kind of like a principle of it almost is to like be with whatever is there and like allowing it right
1: exactly yeah exactly (laughs) And that's, and that's where, what I needed to do. And of course, you know, the reality is like, and there, as, you, as you know this too, when you get to that point where, you know, there's a break or a panic attack or an issue, and we often think, oh yeah, it's because of this, you know, it's because Joshua died. This is why I'm unwell. But really that's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, there's a whole raft of issues that have previously been going wrong in your life. And this is like the final one. Um, mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize was I hadn't paid attention to so many other traumas and tragedies that have happened in my life. So once I went into therapy, I realized, oh, okay, the more I delve in and the more I unpick and the more I resolve, the happier and calmer I become. So it became almost like a, a cat and mouse game to come to terms with things that happened in my life. And the more I did that, the happier and calmer I became as a, as a human.
0: Oh, that's awesome. And uh, did before uh before like uh Joshua's death, did you have any experience in like meditation or mindfulness at all?
1: Not um not directly, but it has been something that had always really interested me and I'd come across it on multiple times. Like I've had, you know, the you, you talk about the, the, the universe as a way of trying to talk to you. I had many interactions with teachers over the time, even to the point where I happened to be in a restaurant and I was supposed to meet my parents and they didn't turn up. And I got talking to this um, Zen Buddhist monk and spent hours talking to him. And there's been like lots of moments through my life where I kept coming close to meditation, to Buddhism, to mindfulness and thinking, wow, I really like that. And then getting away from it. And as a teenager, I was always fascinated by the Hare Krishna movement um, when they were in Dublin. And then when I went to London, I was 19. I I spent a long time, 20 years of my life working in London. And I connected with them many times. But, you know, I was also a pinstriped uh, financier in private equity and investment banking who had this kind of spiritual leaning, and those two things are not really well connected.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't. Uh, yeah, you don't see those two things connected very often. <laughs> but oh. uh, uh, no, I, I love that. And because uh, uh, one thing I did want to get into, like you did go to Japan and you did a master's training with uh, what is it called, the Yamabushi?
1: Yamabushi, yeah.
0: Yeah, and this is like uh, these are. It's based in Buddhism, am I right?
1: yeah so well it's so the so the 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 core is what's called shigendo um and shigendo comes from um it's it's around seventh century um and shigendo so within japan you have um the shinto religion and then you have buddhism and then you have a kind of an esoteric buddhism and shigendo is is kind of a mix of these that have all come together so it's it's very similar to Buddhism, but one of the beautiful things around um, the Yamabushi, who who were the priests and the monks within Shigendo and and the principle of 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 the beliefs really are that nature is the core and center that brings all the harmony and relief that we need to find in the world, rather than you know the 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 nature of of dogma that will be attached to other forms of of Buddhism. So. When I was kind of on my spiritual quest and trying to figure out, you know, what do I want and, and what's, what is it that I'm looking for in, in, in terms of, of refilling my spiritual cup? Um, I don't even know how I found the Yamabushi because Shigendo is like really hard to even research and find anything out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's this very small part of, of, of Japanese culture. And even when, when I arrived in Tokyo and i had been communicating and connecting with the Yamabushi for three years, when I arrived in Tokyo, I, I was on an, uh, a bike tour and I was talking to these, these uh, Japanese teenagers who were doing the bike tour. And I said, oh, I'm here. I'm going to go um, complete my master training with the Yamabushi. And they were like, do they really exist? So even in, in, in Japan, they're going, it's kind of mystical. Does that <laughs> actually really happen for real? Um, nice. So. Yeah, it was it was really impressive um and it was really exciting and, and the Yamabushi w- operate in in where I was um in Shonai, which is which is the the last um holding point for the samurai during imperialist Japan. So a lot of the people that I, I worked with and trained with also have um samurai lineage and the yamabushi were very much a spiritual connection to the samurai so the principles are very similar so the training as you can imagine is is pretty arduous um given mm-hmm. that connection but but quite incredible at the same time
0: and like when you started therapy like um you said like after that three months where you like were really down and then you started therapy so like when you got into that therapy was it like it seems like you made like more of a shift into like a self-care kind of mode and is that kind of like where it kind of led you down to like going and like um training with the Yamabushi?
1: Yeah definitely I mean it's I think I think in many ways you know when you when you choose a spiritual path and you also try and realign your life around the values that you think are important to you. And, and, and in terms of broader society, it's always, um, space for growth and change. And I think me as, as a spiritual practitioner now is very different to me yesterday, last week and three months ago. So, so the journey for me really from, from 2015 to, to now, um, has been a huge one of evolution and growth, but um, after I was in therapy, and meditation is a cornerstone to the therapeutic treatment that I was on. Um, once I completed it, I spoke to to my therapist and said to him, "Look, I love what you do. Can you train me in 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 your practice? Because this is quite extraordinary." So he developed this technique called subjective emotive brief therapy, which is a big mouthful. Um, <laughs> but uh, he said, "Yeah, sure, no problem." So I spent the next two years um, uh, under his tuition, and then I I arrived in in my boardroom and and informed my shareholders that I was selling out of my financial services company and and my other investment interests, and they all thought I was going to set up some kind of business in competition with them and. This was some kind of ruse because me telling them that, you know, I want to become a therapist and a coach and I found this spiritual path that I want to follow. They just couldn't believe it. But uh, that was (laughs) that was a big shift then. So in 2017, I decided to sell um, all of my interests and change the way that I was living
0: that's amazing. Like, uh, yeah, and, uh, so then you went to Japan and how long were you in Japan? And like, I just want to kind of understand a little bit of like this training because you say it's grueling. <laughs> that's how you describe it. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of want to like understand and like get paint a little picture of this.
1: Yeah. So, so, um, really I, I started to, to delve into, um, into Buddhism, um, which, which I felt, um, a calling towards, and I, I started my, my academic study into into Buddhism. And then really, um, within that, I started to try and find where I felt I could feel the greatest sense of, of alignment. And I started to read the stories of um, Yamabushi and um, Shigendo. <clears throat> and then I realized that there was an opportunity to go and do master training. But what's important within going to do master training is that you have to have a lot of established practices and principles already in place. But some of the interesting things about the Yamabushi is that um, cold water is a key part of the training. So um, within the Yamabushi, when you go on master training, but also within your practice as you move through life, we use cold water as a means to kind of cleanse and prepare the body every day. So prior to knowing about Yambushi, I'd been um, swimming in the, in the cold Irish sea for about three years prior to that and meditating when I swim, which was interesting. I'd also moved into intermittent fasting, which is also a key part of, of training and, um, and also um, I'd gone plant-based so when I connected with the ambush, it was really weird because it was a whole bunch of things that I'd had and brought myself into an alignment with their practice. Um, so when I connected with with the with um, the guys who were organising the trip, and then one of the monks, um, I was able to navigate my way to the point where I was able to get accepted into master training, which involves uh, a really wild five days um, in in some of the highest mountains in in Japan, um, which was, which was an incredible experience. Um, and I completed my master training, uh, three years ago.
0: Oh, wow. And, uh, you said it's like uh, so cold, uh, cold therapy is kind of something that's like a part of their training as well and a part of their like daily life.
1: Yeah. So in the, in the Shonai region, region of Japan, um, the, the snow capped mountains, um, produce these incredibly cold waterfalls and water pools. So um, as part of your training in Yamabushi, we, we go and we meditate in these cold water pools and under these um, cold water waterfalls. Um, and And the acclimation and capacity for the body to be able to persevere and stay inside cold water whilst being in a meditative state is part of the practice. And that's all about being able to manage and maintain your nervous system so that you you don't go into that fight flight response. You're able to stay grounded, present and calm with the extremities of cold water because it also signifies in many ways our capacity to stay grounded and calm within the extremities of life because we can't change how um our worlds impact us or how our lives impact us. What we can do is control how we respond. And that's that's cold water is used as part of that technique.
0: I I actually really like that because I I guess like a lot of us do get into a meditation or mindfulness kind of routine, but like, you know, we're doing it from the safety of our own homes We would like to presume. And uh, yeah, so like, you know, if we're at home and we're meditating or something, you know, it's fine to get that calm mind when you're just like alone and safe in your home. But I, I love this idea of like, you're in like ice cold water, which I've done once. I I do cold showers now, but like, uh, ice cold water, I've done once. And after one minute, I was like, I can't do it, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) I guess I need more practice. Like, uh, you were saying, but, uh, the ability to jump into this, like very, it's a very tough uh, situation when you first jump into it and then like learning to calm down that nervous system, because like you said, immediately you're like, let's jump the hell out of here. But, um, learning to do that. I I bet you that like that mental toughness that comes from that. And like also the mental confidence that you have that you're like, Hey, I learned how to control my body like this. I I bet that's like an amazing thing for you. Right.
1: Yeah, it is, but it's actually, it's almost counterintuitive. So you kind of start off thinking control and toughness, and then you move to the point of release, letting go and just allowing it to be. Mm-hmm. So you start off at one point and you end up at another because what you're able to move towards is the fluidity of, of just being okay with whatever's here. Um, and and within that training over the five days, like we do some really extraordinary things. Like when you, when you arrive <clears throat> so first of all, we have to um, wear um, the traditional um, mountain monk Yamabushi clothing through the training. So you, you have to put on all these white garments um, and traditional shoes, um, and, and the shoes are, are almost completely barefoot. You just have uh, enough rubber to protect the bottom of your soles, and you're, and you're going to be hiking for eight, 10 hours a day. Um, you hand over your phone, you hand over your watch. So you're not allowed to know what time it is anymore. You're not allowed to make any contact with the outside world. And then they're locked in the safe. Um, and from that moment, when they hand you your traditional clothing, you're no longer allowed to speak. And when you're training, the the other thing that we're told is that, so I was training, there was um, seven with me and three monks. And you're told, not to at any point help another person or make eye contact with another person, no matter what we encounter over those few days. And at the start, that sounded relatively tame, but you sign a whole load of disclaimers, which, you know, I'm, I'm used to signing disclaimers for stuff. And, you know, you think about it in the U S terms, right. Where they just disclaim everything. Yeah, yeah. When the Japanese give you a disclaimer saying that you might encounter black bears or you might fall perilously to your death. They mean it, right? Yeah, They yeah. don't just put it in just to cover themselves. So we sign all these disclaimers and then we set about this incredible experience. Um, so we've relatively fasting for five days, like most basic bit of food in the morning, like a, a rice ball and some water and the same at night. So your, your body's put under pressure from a food perspective, um, if you fall, stumble or hurt yourself and we all did. And at one stage, um, I badly injured my, my ankle, um, really struggled, fell into a into a hole that was about five foot deep. Um, but all of my colleagues just ran past me and didn't look because it's all about, you have to pick yourself up. You have to get inside yourself and you need to get yourself out of everything. And you do all these incredible things during the day. And then every night, we would go um, into a smoky hut where we would go in into this tiny little room and we'd all come in and in the center would be a fire and um, our, our master who's training us would light the fire and it was just filled with toxic fumes all from different plants that they take from outside. And we'd all we'd, we'd meditate and we'd stay there and the room would fill up and you would eventually leave the room on the floor crawling out but the aim was to try and stay in for as long as you could. And at the end of each grueling day, this was to signify um, in in Yamabushi terms, this is how hell is. So you either find this capacity to be reborn within the mountains, or you continue to feel the persecution of your life in the ordinary world. So it's like this constant reminder of there are ways to manage stress and tension. So, climbing the hiking the fasting the cold water it's it's not as bad as it as it appears to be but the alternative is you continue to suffer and your life is toxic and it consumes you and that's not a good place to be
0: yes damn yeah that's deep man <laughs> i love that uh and like yeah i like that at the end of the day like even like reminding yourself like what that what your regular life can be just like living in that like unconscious state and how like toxic and how much suffering that is actually there when you compare it to the, like this suffering that you're taking on yourself and like yeah. understanding that, Hey, I can control myself in this. I, man, that's awesome. Um, one thing I've never, like, I've never actually talked to somebody who's done this kind of bow of silence thing. So like you said, you, you weren't allowed to talk to anybody for five days, look in each other, anybody's eyes. So like, like no connection at all in this sense, like, I just want to know, like, what what did you learn from that, that or like, what did you even like, like, yeah, how, what 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 did you, yeah, what did you learn from that? That's like such an interesting like thing.
1: Well, so I've have done it now many times, and and you know within Buddhism we we refer to this as as a noble silence. And what's interesting is that when you're in silence, you. and and especially silence with other people you know we can often think we have silence ourselves and 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 we're we're not talking but of course we are and we're often distracted by so many other things but silence when you're with another person is 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 what you would call at times a deafening silence because all it's left with is you um and and you know we walk um, within the mountains of Shonai. Um, one of the mountains, Mount, Mount Gasson, is, is the third highest mountain in Japan. And we hike that for hours. And you're in extreme weather conditions, um, extremely harsh environments, and you're walking on your own with nobody speaking to you. Um, and you're under pressure because they don't allow you to, to stop, to rest, to do anything, right? So you, it's also quite military in the terms of, of the demands and rigor but you are left with working through in your own mind. So what you meet in silence generally is, is most of the things that you've been hiding from. Um, many people may have come across or experienced, you know, Vipassana meditation practices where you do, you go and do 10 day retreats in silence. And, mm-hmm. um, I work with a lot of people who, who go on them and I provide therapy to people who are preparing to go on them but we're, we're very cautious about who we even let to go on these type of retreats because you really want to do a little bit of psychological analysis beforehand because if somebody has faced recent trauma or you know maybe is exposed to addiction, you have to really check that they're okay because silence after especially a couple of days can really bring up the demons. Um, and if you're not ready for them, it can cause really, really traumatic um, psychological impacts on 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 a human.
0: Yeah, and so when the demons do come up, like, what do you like? Is it more of just kind of like the cold water thing, where it's just kind of accepting them? Is that how you try to? Is that the mindset you try to take with it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for me at the time um, when I was when I was training with the Amabushi. So much of, of what I needed to do with my life I'd already dealt with. So I was kind of lucky. Of course, you know, every time I work in silence, there's stuff to learn. I mean, every Wednesday morning here beside where I live in Greystones in Ireland, I offer um, a, a mindful and meditation walk on the beach beside us at 6 a.m., and we walk for an hour and 15 minutes in silence and, and that just allows people to come along and, and, and experience the whole idea of really slowing down. So we we'll walk really slowly and we're just paying attention to the feet, listening to the sound of the sea and being in silence. And even for that hour and 15 minutes, when I'm walking with those people, stuff comes up, you know, by just, by just creating the capacity to pause in our life, you know, just Put a bit of spaciousness in and be with yourself. There is always something to learn. So for people who go on on a 10-day silent retreat, we just want to make sure before they go that they're okay. And it doesn't mean that you can't go if you've had problems, because let's be fair, you know, trauma, which is always a big word, like my son died, but trauma has various layers. Somebody else's trauma may not appear as bad as losing a child, but Depends on how bad it impacts you. You know, a relationship breakup when you were twenty-two can be hugely traumatic that can cause you anxiety and bring you into depression or losing your job or COVID and the nature of the world as we see it now. So um everybody is an individual. And just because my trauma is something that most of us would consider really hard, I've I I'm I'm at pains always to help people understand that I don't want you to think that you need to end up getting to my point to find some capacity with meditation and mindfulness to help you feel better about yourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's there to help everybody at any point. And don't be afraid of how you feel because whatever is irking you needs your attention.
0: Oh yeah, no, you're right. And it always does need your attention. And I love that whole idea of like, you should be getting to places of silence or be trying to do that because it does help with like bringing stuff up that could help you with some form of healing or just some form of just living a better life and like understanding it. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and like, you know, we, we, when we spoke before we started recording and, and talking about psychedelics, it's like with, with psychedelics, it brings you to that point. Relatively quickly, where you where you feel like you're you're touching on the side of what's deep inside me that I'm not connecting to. Mm -hmm. But one of the challenges then, from a psychedelic perspective, is you know if you end up in the constant pursuit of of that feeling. So, you know, people might be um you know in multiple ayahuasca experiences with meditation and mindfulness. What we're trying to do is do it slowly consistently and be able to show up for ourselves every day so we can have that sense of me as the human and me as a spirit you know the the dual connection of being able to sit with me in my entirety um is something quite beautiful but it takes time and practice
0: a hundred percent and uh like you said like psychedelics bring you there quickly but uh i've also noticed like if you don't have that kind of like some sort of spiritual practice afterwards and like it doesn't need to be meditation. It can be like some sort of discipline, but like, um, yeah, if you don't have that afterwards uh, that you're not really going to get too much from those psychedelic experiences, I'll just be more of like really cool experiences or really yeah. high experiences you had, but uh, that transformation might not come that you really wanted from, or really you thought you got. Um, so, uh, all right, this is awesome. I, I, I wanted to ask you just because I know you come from a business background. Uh, you started so many companies uh, and businesses and like, yeah, yeah. obviously when it comes to making money, you've uh, done that thing, you know, you know how to do that. Um, and uh, so I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about like uh, making money and spiritualism, like sure. the connection with it. Uh, one thing I noticed, like when I first started, like, uh, becoming like a lot spiritual in my 20s and stuff and like started like um, ingesting all these different types of uh, books and podcasts and YouTube videos whatever it is um, yeah I, I think my whole mindset back then especially when it came to money was just like uh, you know money and spirituality like they don't uh, coexist and like it was kind of like oh like that you're just a materialist and like kind of being like that was kind of my mindset back then Um, when I started doing like some actual more transformation and stuff like I kind of learned like uh, I kind of like actually like really began began to focus on my career and like a lot more money started coming my way because of that and I and honestly I'm not going to lie to you I I do desire to get more money I know that desire is there and like I think it's a healthy one I think when it comes to my materialism like that might not be there. Like when it comes to like a sports car and stuff, I don't know if I even care about that. And like, so those kind of desires aren't there, but that the desire to constantly improve me and my money, like that's definitely there. And uh, I don't know. I I do find like, I I feel like it's, I'm in a healthy place with that, but how, how did you, how do you look at like money and spirituality and like, even that desire when it comes to it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a really important Point. I think, you know, I often, I often, um, could consider myself like a recovering capitalist because so much of what we have to do in capitalism is, is not great. And, and I was a workaholic definitely for, for, for most of my career. So success at times, um, is, is, is achieved by driving and pushing very hard. And, and, you know, there's consequences for the people around you because of that. Um, so I think I've moved from this idea of of extreme capitalism more into kind of conscious capitalism and 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 you know trying to be far greater more far greater awareness around what I'm trying to do. I think you know I I, I would never discourage anybody from the pursuit of the wealth that they need to achieve in order to you know sustain their lifestyle, their family, etc. I had a walk today um, this afternoon with. With a guy who um, has made a lot of money in crypto young guy, he's 36. um, And uh, he was referred to me um, through a friend and he just asked me, you know, could could we have a walk? And one of the challenges that he's facing is that he has been on the crypto um, journey since 2013 and he's made a lot of money and he, and he doesn't know when is enough. And, we had this conversation where I said to me, you, know, you have to develop a plan and a strategy to exit this because whether it's crypto or whether it's you know somebody who, who's involved in trading, um, as we've seen, retail investors get involved heavily in trading during COVID times. You, you have to realize that this is like a drug being pumped into your veins, and you're now hooked up to an IV that you're pulling around with a little trolley behind you, and you're constantly feeding this into your into your system. So as you as you go towards that wealth, and as you say, it may not be the sports car, but the problem is that wealth consumes. So the more you get, the more you want. So it's really important to have a strategy and a, and a plan. And like uh, for somebody who's come from an investment management background, we always build strategies as to how we're going to enter and exit markets. And for somebody's own personal wealth journey, that's important too, because Nobody who becomes, um you know, capitalistic and and uncaring in the world um, generally ever set out to do that. It's just that money and wealth can consume over time. So it's, it's important to do and it's important to cultivate, but it's important to have a plan. And then to do that inside a spiritual path as well, is to have clear ethics within your plan. So I'm going to be consciously growing my wealth and and as you've experienced yourself Nora, you know you've you've realized that that you can do that but for a lot of people they think that the the two things are inextricably you know never going to be connected right they're they're completely separate but we can combine them
0: yeah and uh no i like that like have like kind of an exit strategy and i think that's a good way to look at it and like kind of how you said like uh when you start chasing money, that's like uh, that becomes like the consuming thing. Like that's what your focus is. So like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just trying to find a way to just kind of put this in my head or maybe even for my audience, but like just chasing the money just for the money's sake is probably not the healthiest way to look at it, but have more of a personal purpose or a personal ethic or personal something that's kind of rooted inside yourself to be like more value inside yourself or what, what something that you do value more than the money. Is that kind of how you're saying this?
1: Yeah, exactly. But also, you know, if you think about like, think about the way crypto has grown or retail investors have grown, you know, so people, you know, betting on, on, on GameStop and all these kind of like, I
0: I got my shares. Don't, (laughs) 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 you know, um, but but, but like,
1: that's fine. Like, and, 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 the, the nature of people doing it, I think, is fantastic. I mean, it's incredible to see retail investors rise up and take on Wall Street. But what's important to realize is that it's no different to going into the casino, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you have to realize that the house always wins. Now, a small percentage of people can cash their chips and get out. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to be the small percentage of people who can cash their chips and get out, you have to have a plan and a strategy because in the casino, there's no windows. You can't see what's, what's day and what's night. You know, There's no clocks on the walls. They'll constantly keep bringing you drinks to keep you on the table. So when you're, when you're investing in stocks, when you're investing in crypto, your mind will be sucked in to the trading just like you are in a casino and now because people are working from home it's easy to have your trading window open on your computer because there's nobody looking over your shoulder like you would get if you're in the office so you have to know that this is a drug and you know it's like when i work with people and 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 they're struggling with anxiety i say to them you got to leave your phone outside the bedroom at night and they go oh well you know it's very hard because you know i, can't, I use my alarm clock and i say well if you have your phone by your bedside table, that's like saying to a, a, a cocaine or a crack addict, you know, there's going to be a little bit of crack there on the side of the table. And when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, could you not go near that and just leave it till, you know, yeah, 8 a.m.? Yeah. It yeah. doesn't work because we're predisposed to lean into that phone because we're addicted to it. In the same way, when you're investing in cryptocurrencies or your You're pushing the the, the GameStop um, um, algorithm. You're being hooked into it. It's feeding the dopamine in your brain. I mean, I love the neuroscience of it all. So recognizing that you're being sucked in is important because that will allow you to also recognize, I need to be the 2% who get out of the casino and cash in and walk away. And that's what's important with, with growing your wealth.
0: That's smart. And uh, yeah, so everybody have an exit strategy. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, all right, we're closing into in the end here. One more thing before I ask you the question of the podcast, but um, you do uh, like, I want people to check out your YouTube uh, channel because you have like a lot of amazing uh, videos on there. Um, I you I one video you talked about meditation and the vagus nerve. Uh, can you uh, tell my audience a little bit about uh, like I I I've actually the vagus nerve meditation. The uh, first time I heard about it was on your channel. So like, uh, can you tell my audience a little bit about what the vagus nerve is and why this meditation is important?
1: Yeah, sure. So the the vagus nerve it's it's the tenth cranial nerve. So it's, it's, it's a really unusual nerve in the context of the fact that it's, it, it touches every single nerve ending within the body. And if you can imagine a switch that exists inside our body and on one side, we have the rest and recovery state, which, you know, hopefully you and I are in that state right now. We're, we're here, we're present, we're aware of our conversation. We're not getting caught in stress or anxiety. And then the other side of the switch is fight, flight, and freeze. And the way that the human being is set up is that we should be 95% inside rest recovery, 5% inside fight, flight, and freeze. However, in the modern 21st century, many people are now just trapped in the fight, flight, and freeze response. So it's like this low-grade anxiety. It's just an underlying sense of, I'm just waiting for the next thing to go wrong and that's because our nervous systems have now become fried. Meditation and mindfulness is a way to navigate over the long term to move your nervous system into rest and recovery but the vagus nerve is an entry point that we can access quite quickly and cold water um, is an access point to the vagus nerve. So an example would be if you if you um, take cold showers as you do. When when we look at being in a cold shower, we know that four minutes, roughly, and this is on the back of clinical data, shows that four minutes of cold water um, arriving onto the onto the, the neck and the shoulders. And you know when you're in the cold shower, cold water on the back of the neck is really painful, right? That's like the worst part of the whole. Not painful, but the most uncomfortable part. Mm-hmm. But it's there that we access the vagus nerve and it's there where, where the, the, the switch is flicked and we move into this rest and recovery phase. So why is cold water swimming in the sea or rivers or cold showers booming all over the world? Because people are struggling more and more with anxiety. And as we move into cold water, it switches the cranial nerve 10, the vagus nerve, And we walk out where we've actually started to think, Oh, I'm not obsessing about what I was obsessing about before we get into the cold water, because we've actually switched the regulation of the nervous system. And the challenge is it works really well for an hour or two. And then we suddenly all of the demons come back. The negative thoughts come back in the voices, the inner critic, all that reappears. And that's why better strategies, longer term are cold water and meditation. But, just as a short term fix, it works well.
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing. And uh, so with the uh, cold shower, you're saying four minutes, is this like, this is kind of like the magic number?
1: Yeah, so it's between three and four minutes, depending on, on where we are. Um, and it's interesting, I, I teach people how to swim in cold water in the sea beside where I live. And our, and our sea is like, really, really cold. Um, I think in, in Fahrenheit, it's probably like 40 Um, in the winter or, or less. So it's it's really, really cold. Um, but when you bring them into cold water and and you immerse them in cold water and and you know to preface this to say, be careful with cold water because you know cold water shock can kill you, so make sure that you ease into it, you research and learn about it. Mm-hmm. But when I bring people into cold water, as you get them under the water and it's important to have their shoulders submerged, the first three minutes of them being under there, their eyes will be racing around their bodies in shock, their nervous system saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. They're hyperventilating. So you're saying, okay, come on, just keep your focus on me. Keep breathing, keep breathing. And I can literally watch it when the vagus nerve switches, their body relaxes, their eyes stop darting around because they're not looking for an exit. And they're then present. So you can actually watch it happening right in front of your eyes when you're with somebody in cold water. So it's, that moment where it becomes really unbearable to oh okay i'm actually okay i'm okay with this and then and then we've moved into that rest and recovery which is called the parasympathetic nervous state and the sympathetic state is where we're stressed
0: mm. okay that's amazing all right i'll make sure and that- in that
1: video there's there's a good video on on there which is which has been watched like stupid amount of times like i don't know 70,000 times or something but it's a can also use a really simple breathing technique which is which i put on youtube and if you experiment with that you can do it a few times and you actually start to realize that just by doing the breathing technique you can feel a little bit of a shift in the body already and the mind relaxes
0: and that's the box breathing am i right
1: yep so um i think on the youtube video there's two actually there's there's a box breathing technique and then there's also um a five to eight breathing technique where you're Breathing in for five seconds, you're holding your breath for two seconds, and then you're breathing out really slowly for eight seconds. So that breathing technique is teaching your, is just tapping in to your nervous system, and your nervous system is listening. And as it notices that you're breathing out really slowly, it knows that as humans, when we breathe really slowly, there's no threat to our life. We're not in danger, so we're okay. So it's going, oh, I'm okay, and then you repeat it, and it goes, oh, I'm still okay, I'm still okay. And it just helps the body relax and the nervous
0: system to switch. That is awesome. So yeah, that's a great, uh, can you say that, that name? of Because box breathing, I remember, is uh, you take each uh, cycle of the breath you try to keep at the same time, right? And then the, yeah, the other breathing exercise you were just talking about. Of... The breathing
1: is, think of it like a time on a clock, five to eight. So it's breathing in for five seconds. And then you hold your breath for two seconds. And then as you breathe out slower, it's eight seconds on the way out. So it's always, it's always quite good to count in five, hold for two, and then count down eight. So when you're breathing out, it's like eight, seven, six, and then just empty your lungs on the way out. If you do that three or four times in succession, really helpful if you're about to have a difficult conversation conversation. If you're going on a Zoom call and you feel apprehensive about public speaking, if you're about to take an exam, if you're going to take your driving test, you know, anything where you're feeling anxious, it just helps the body to just calm and take it easy for a moment before you step into that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I'm a comedian, uh like when the lockdowns aren't on. So like, I remember even like when I used to have stage fright before going on stage, I would have to like calm down my body by slowing down my breath so that's like it's kind of cool how you're saying like when you slow down your breath your body kind of or is telling your body and your mind like oh we're slowing down the breath so we must be okay which is it's like i love that that's cool so i'm going to try this uh five two, eight breathing five two, eight i'll remember that five to eight. <laughs> eight exactly
1: exactly you can tap into the nervous system it's it's so wonderful
0: oh that's so cool all right we're at the end of the show i got one more question for you it's the name of the podcast so Justin Caffrey god yay or nay
1: absolute yay absolute yay spent many years questioning and having a big nay but uh, yeah now it's a hundred percent for me okay
0: (laughs) that's amazing all right thank you justin this was such a fun episode um please let my audience know anything you want uh where they can get a hold of you or anything you want to promote please let them know
1: uh, probably the simplest way to get me is um, if you just uh, go to my website, justincaffrey.com. Um, you also find me on on Instagram and LinkedIn. My name is pretty easy to, to search. Um, and on my website, you'll find out um, courses I run as well. So there's um, we run monthly uh, mindfulness and meditation courses for people all over the world. Um, it's an interactive course available. So if anybody's interested in learning a bit more, please come on board, connect to me, um, and I'd love to give you a little bit of insight and maybe show you some ways to live a little bit more pleasantly and with purpose.
0: Heck yeah. All right. And I'll toss that in the podcast description. Uh, Thank you so much, Justin. This was awesome.
1: Thanks, man. It's been great. Really enjoyed it.
0: All right. That was another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And share it with like-minded people. I really do appreciate that. You can check me out at NewerKidY on Instagram. Or check out my website, newerkidY.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up. And all that other information. We're part of the comedy here often. Podcast Network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay
1: or Nay.